Okay, everybody. We might have crept up to our largest post-coronavirus uh, <coughs> number here. That's great. So today, believe it or not, we have arrived at the concluding message in this long series we've been doing on the God who is here. Next week, Todd is going to be preaching, and then we're going to start a fall series the week following uh, Labor Day, and we're going to turn our attention to the Old Testament prophet Hosea and uh, spend some time examining uh, that period and those problems that uh, the Lord spoke to in that day. So, let's, uh, let's do some wrap-up here. Uh, I actually suggested to the, uh, the sermon follow-up class uh, that will be meeting after this online that uh, people think about ideas that maybe have stuck with them, important truths. So we're going to talk about that later, but what I'm giving you is some things that have continued to be on my mind as we work through this series. So let's look at a couple different texts and uh, talk about them. The first is from Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And, of course, there's much more in that psalm about God and his relationship to us, but uh, this is where I'd want to start. I want to start with this idea that God is present. That's part of what was behind the series. Remember, we started out saying we thought about talking about the God who is there. A lot of people have used that title. But it seems to me that talking about the God who is here is even more important. Because for many of us, God is there, but he's not here. God is an idea that we have, a belief that we have, but God is not present in our lives. We talked about deism, right, that that ancient uh, religious philosophy that goes back before to the early period of the Enlightenment, that God was existed, but God was distant. Uh, God created the world and kind of let it run on by itself, but he was not actively present in people's lives. Many of us as Christians are or have been at a period in our lives, what I call functional deists. We wouldn't actually endorse that idea directly, but that's the way we live, because God for us is uh, distant and remote, and uh, we don't have a sense that he is present with us. But God in the Bible is present, and the psalmist has that uh, understanding. And it's, uh, it's a complex understanding, isn't it? On the one hand, God is infinite, meaning he is without limits in his character. Sometimes you hear the word transcendent, which suggests the idea that God is beyond all the confines of the material universe. But God is infinite. He is 
one who exists without limitation. He's infinite in his power. We use that term omnipotent, right? Which means there's no limit in his power. Uh, That doesn't mean that God can do something that is self-contradictory or nonsense. So the old... uh, the, the old uh, puzzler, right? Can God create a rock that he can't move? That's not a real problem. That's nonsense, right? But, but when the Bible talks about God, it talks about one who has no limitation. What God desires to accomplish, he effectively accomplishes. So he's unlimited in his power, He's unlimited in his being, and there I'm thinking about God's existence as duration. It's the idea of eternity. There's no limitation placed upon him in terms of his existence or being. In the uh, beginning of Revelation, God introduces himself as the Alpha and Omega, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. No limitation in being or in presence. God is present everywhere. The psalmist is very aware of that, isn't he? Where can I go to flee from your spirit? And then he tries different things. You know, if I go into the depths of the sea or wherever. And, and his realization is he can't escape from God's presence because God is with him. And there's no limitation. There's no place that we can hide from God's presence. And God is infinite in his knowledge, including his knowledge of us. Oh God, you have searched me and you know me. So God, on the one hand, is infinite and transcendent, but at the same time, God is imminent, as opposed to imminent. Uh, a lot of people confuse those terms, right? Imminent is, means something is about to happen. So sometimes we talk about the coming of Christ as imminent. It can happen soon. It can happen at any time. Imminent is the idea of presence, that God who transcends all of created reality is also present within created reality. The, uh, the painting on the ceiling of Sistine Chapel, the painting of creation that Michelangelo did, you know, has God reaching down to Adam and the, the fingers coming together there, the touch. That's, that's God's imminence. God is present. He is with us. Paul says it this way in Acts 17. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So as we've done this study, I think this is one of the 
ideas that has come to be more and more important to me, this idea that the God of the Bible is a God who is not just there, but he is a God who is here. He's here with us as really and genuinely as my wife is here, as Janice is here, He's really here. The challenge is that I forget that. Because he's not visibly present, I can quickly begin to think that he's not really genuinely present at all. He's off doing something else. He's he's busy with other things. But God is present and how to deepen the reality of that awareness of mine, of his presence, that's one thing that has really stood out in this series to me. All right, Exodus 3. We looked at this for a couple weeks, actually. Very important text. Exodus 3, Moses has been living... uh, as an outlaw, out in the wilderness. He fled Egypt when he was 40. Now he's lived another 40 years in the desert. And he sees a bush that burns but is not consumed, and that leads to this interaction with God. God says, "Uh, Moses, I have a task for you to do. I want you to go back to Egypt and be my agent to speak to Pharaoh, and to bring liberation to my people. So Moses, as you might imagine, has a few questions about that job assignment. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Because Egypt was filled with many gods who had many names. What's his name? Then what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, Yahweh, that's that's in the Hebrew text, Yahweh, every time in the Old Testament, 6,000 plus times that you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is this name. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Well, what do we make of this? God names himself. He doesn't just give a title, you know, I'm the boss. Lots of titles in Scripture for God. The one who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. That's that's a title. 
But this is a name. This name, Yahweh. In Hebrew, just four letters. Hebrew reads right to left instead of left to right. Who knows why that is? But yeah, so there's the Y, the Oath, and the, the H, the Hey, and the W or the V sound, Vav, and then another H. So we get switching the order left to right, we get Y. H, W, H, and of course originally Hebrew was written without vowels, so it compresses it to just four letters. The divine name, Yahweh, and what does it mean? Well, there's so, so much richness in that passage, and then of course in the unfolding of the Old Testament, where as I said, this term is used over 6,000 times for God. So, all kinds of thoughts are wrapped up in this. Emphasis, I think, on God as the sovereign one. I am who I am. And I will be who I will be. You can translate that either way, present or future. God is who he is. He will always be who he is because he is the sovereign one. There's no one else and there's no other reality that impinges on God's existence and says, you will be this. I mean, that happens to us all the time, right? We're nurtured up in a culture that shapes us, in a family that shapes us. We have experiences that shape us and change us. We're the, we're the sum total of all those different experiences and our reactions to them. But when we come to God, the sovereign one, the I am, nobody makes God who God is. God has that independence. Sometimes theologians talk about God's self-existence. God is not dependent upon anyone else for existence or for the, the kind of being that God is. God is sovereign. He's the one who will be. I go back and forth. It's a great thing to meditate on, the difference between I am who I am and I will be who I will be. And both of them have important thoughts, right? I will be who I will be suggests that God will be all that... Israel needs in this journey they're about to take. God will be sufficient to their needs. God will be with them. Moses said, you know, how can I do this? How can I go back? Who am I? And implied in all that is, you know, 40 years ago I was ready to take things in hand. Why weren't you ready then? And now at 80 years old, I'm 72. I wouldn't want to undertake that. 80 years old, he's getting sent back. And Moses is saying to God, how can I do this? And what does God say? I will be with you. I will be. I will be, I will be present. I'll be there to support you. He's the one who will be. 
He's also the Redeemer. The idea of deliverance, God's, God's powerful right hand exerted to save Israel, to bring them out of captivity, to bring them to the promised land. That is so much tied up with this mysterious name, Yahweh. <clears throat> By the way, I, <clears throat> we talked about it back there, but you may recall that there's, there's a play going on in these verses when Moses said, what's your name? What do I tell him? God says, I am who I am. And only after that does he introduce this mysterious name, Yahweh. So somehow, apparently, we are to make a connection between Yahweh and I will be who I will be. The, uh, the Hebrew actually looks like, this name looks like it's a play on the verb to be. I am who I am. There's some kind of a play going back and forth there. The scholars debate what it is, but clearly those are self-interpreting ideas. And wrapped up with that, God will reveal himself to Israel as Yahweh in the events of the Exodus, in this great redemption he's about to accomplish. So God's name is tied up with his action to bring deliverance to his people. It's also, I think, tied to this idea of faithfulness. Yahweh is the faithfulness. What do I tell him, Moses says? What's, what's your name? What do they need to know? Tell them that I am Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That is, tell them that I am the God who came to Abraham and made all those promises to Abraham about how he would have a people descended from him that would become a great nation, about how he would have a land of his own, the land of promise, the land of Canaan. And now I am come to his people to bring that to pass. We're not just getting out of Egypt, we're going someplace. Moses, I want you to lead them to that new land. And I am the faithful one who made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, and now I am going to fulfill those promises. So Yahweh is the one who always keeps his word. <clears throat> now, that's a bit of what he says here, but this is what strikes me out of this. That God in naming himself, wants to be known. Right? He wants to be known. Doesn't want to stay at a distance. He doesn't want to be in hiding. He doesn't want to wear a mask. Yeah, you don't either, right? So, understand, God's like you in that sense. God doesn't want to be masked. He doesn't want to be hidden. He gives us his name because he wants to be known. 
That's an extraordinarily powerful idea. God who knows all, everything about you, wants you and me to know him. How do you, how do you get to know some person you haven't known before? Well, you, you usually start out giving your name, don't you? And, of course, name in the Bible has a, a much deeper connection with character. We tend to use names just as kind of superficial identifiers. But in the Bible, the name, particularly the name of God, is revelatory of characters we've already seen. So God wants us not just to know about him, but he wants us to understand his character. We spent a whole year in this series basically looking at the story of this God, the story he tells about himself. How do you get to know someone else, or how do they get to know you? Well, the name's important, but the story that goes with that name is essential, isn't it? It says, I hear you talk about what you do and what you like and what you don't like and what experiences you've had. The more I can hear about that from you, the more likely it is that I come to know you less and less superficially and more genuinely and deeply. So God gives us this whole long story about himself because he wants to be known. What an incredible privilege you and I have that God is so interested in making himself known to us. God names himself. And then Here's a third thing that strikes me, and we'll pull up this verse from last week from Revelation 21, which is uh, the further elaboration that John gives from chapter 21. Uh, uh, Actually, this I think is 22. I misidentified it. Uh, So it's a further elaboration of the the heavenly city and what it looks looks like. He sees the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of down out of heaven uh, from God, and he talks about the nature of the city. And, and now he he hears this: a loud voice from the throne saying, "Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them." and be their God. I think I pointed out last week that that is one of John's many allusions to the Old Testament, in this case, from Leviticus 26, where some of those same phrases are used. Israel is to be God's people. God will dwell among them, particularly in the most holy place of the tabernacle, right? In the center of the camp. They'll be his people. God will be with them and be their God. Now, that, that idea of 
Israel as being the people of God now is on a trajectory that finds fulfillment at the end of God's working in history. When the kingdom comes in its fullness, John can say, this is what I heard. God's declaration that he will dwell with his people forever, that they'll be his people. And, you know, that's where you get the mark on the forehead, the the seal of God, and, and so forth, suggesting belonging. So I've been on that a bit this week. I think this flows right out of what we just said about the name. God wants us to know him. He gives us his name. But he wants us to know him for an even deeper reason. God desires relationship. Knowing, of course, deep knowing is relationship. Central part of it. You can't have it without it. But God's desire is relationship. For people to be his people and for him to be their God. Now I'm going to use a, a picture that you've seen many times. Right? But to me it is probably the most powerful in capturing this idea of relationship. What does God desire in relationship? What does that look like? And uh, three terms come to mind. Family, friends, and partners. He desires family. God himself is, is family, right? The God who <clears throat> exists in the eternal fellowship of love as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's family pictures even in the Godhead. And so he desires relationship with human beings that will bring them into the circle of divine fellowship and family. John says of Christ, he came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. But to as many as did receive him, he gave the right for them to be called the children of God. To those who believe on his name. So that theme of being children of God runs through the New Testament. God is looking for an expanded family. But God is also looking for friends. Abraham is that extraordinary person in the Old Testament who's described as the friend of God. And much the same terminology is used of Moses. Very few people in the Bible get that description. Although Jesus does say to his disciples right before the cross, you remember that extraordinary statement, I, have no, I do not call you servants, but I've called you friends. 
So there's family and there's friends and, and then there's also partners. That is, people who share together in the work and the purposes and the plannings of God. And these three merge into one. And what I like about that picture is that, that I see family there. I see the little guy wanting to be like his dad. So I see family. I see a relationship that if it continues and is nurtured will move beyond simply family into friendship as well. My, uh, my older son, of all my four kids, uh, was probably the one who, who glammed on to me the most from just a very young child. And he wanted to do what I was doing and be where I was. It was an extraordinary experience for me. Now that has actually continued. He'll soon be 40. Interestingly, He's got his own uh, hammer-swinging business. He's, he's in construction. Uh, I'm not a great hammer-swinger. So the dynamic in our relationship has really changed. Uh, in the old days, he wanted to help and couldn't do a whole lot, so he was the gopher. Just like this uh, little guy here can't do a whole lot, really. But he has the desire to do it. And so as my son has developed his building skills, uh, you know who the gopher is now? You know, I actually like to help him. When I can, I take some time, and if there's a project, I like to help, but I'm not, I'm not the, the boss anymore. We need somebody who has more expertise, and he's got the expertise. So the dynamic has shifted a bit. <clears throat> now we're much more partners. We're not just family. We're not just friends. But in those activities, we become partners. <clears throat> he's the senior partner. God is looking for all those things from us. The New Testament uses those <clears throat> extraordinary words. Both John and Paul say that we will reign with Christ. That's, that's partnership, right? And even now we have the opportunity to, <clears throat> to build into and help with the work of the kingdom. Just junior partners, but God invites us to participate with him, <clears throat> family, friends, and partners. And that is so important to God. All three of those elements, so important to God that you can only measure it by the cross. That is how, I, I'm tempted to say desperately, but God's not desperate. But that's how deeply God desires a relationship 
of this sort with you and me. That he would actually come into our world in such a way that the very relationship between the Father and the Son would be, what shall we say, stretched, threatened by the willingness of the Father and the Son for the sacrifice of the cross to go forward. So that the divine family might be expanded so that God may have more friends, that he had more partners in his great kingdom work and plans. The cross is the measure of God's desire to have a relationship with you. The God who is here. But the thing is, you know, I can't see him directly. And it's easy to forget that that's the most important thing on God's mind. Well, these phrases that we've looked at before reinforce this. God wants to be wanted. Or as A.W. Tozer says, God waits to be wanted. God, God will not crash your party. If you don't want to invite him to your party, he won't come. Not out of spite or anger, but God wants to be wanted. Or let's say it this way. Think back to the idea of God's sovereignty. Is there anything God can't do? Well, he can't do nonsense. But here's another thought. God can't force love. You can't either, can you? You can't, you can't say to friends or to your family. You can't say to your spouse. You can't say to brothers or sisters or to children, you must love me. <laughs> you can try to force that one. People who try to force it become scary. They become manipulative. <clears throat> but in the end, you can't force love. Love, <clears throat> love has to grow up out of a healthy relationship, and it takes time, and love can be invited or offered, but it can't be forced. Could God make some kind of a robotic response that all human beings would do what he says? Yeah, I, I guess, but they wouldn't be the kind of human beings he's interested in, and what the response he would get would not be love. It'd be some kind of counterfeit. 
Love can't be forced. And God won't force it if you don't want it, if I don't want it. He wants to be wanted. He wants relationship that grows out of response to his action in Jesus. So, if God desires this relationship and I desire this relationship, then what, what can I do to promote it? Well, the Bible has a variety of ways to talk about that. I was thinking about the psalm that Seth Mangum looked at with us two weeks ago, right? Psalm 27, just one of my favorite psalms. And uh, you remember the verses there where David says, My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. So I've been thinking about that idea of seeking the face of God. What, what does that mean? The face of a God you can't see, <laughs> who is spirit, who in one sense doesn't have a face, doesn't have a body. What does it mean to seek his face? And I guess it means something like turning my attention to try to become aware of how this God who is here is busy around me and in me. Paying attention, I think, is, is a pretty good way of getting at this idea of seeking God's face. And I love uh, Psalm 16, another Psalm of David. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. So, God won't crash my party. If I want to go through a day or a week unaware of his presence, I can do that. It's especially easy in a secular world. You know how to do it too, don't you? You can get so caught up in the tasks you have to do and everything else that you just pretty much run on autopilot and and what you pay attention to is all that myriad of details that sometimes threatens to overwhelm you. So you go from one thing to the next, and, and before long, it's been an hour, it's been two hours, it's been a whole day, and you really haven't kept your eyes on the Lord. You, you haven't seen the places in your life that some people call God sighting. You just haven't seen it. It's not maybe that they aren't there, but you've not been attuned to seeing them because you're so focused on the visible and the immediate that your sensitivity isn't attuned to the spiritual, the supernatural, the God who is here. So as we wrap up this series, this is... I guess the thing that is most with me. Can I grow in this ability to keep my eyes on God? Can I increase my spiritual sensitivity 
to understand where he is working so like, uh, uh, like the little guy in the picture who gets the chance to work with dad, I get the chance to participate in the reality of God's coming kingdom with my Father who is in heaven. I get the chance to do that, but only as I'm aware of what's happening and what he is accomplishing in me but around me. He desires to give me that place with himself. He could do all of that by himself, right? And much more efficiently. But he desires to give me a place of significance in his kingdom. But he says, I want you, Dave, to want that. And so you're going to have to pay attention. You're going to have to turn your thoughts toward me. Turn your heart toward me. You're going to have to ask questions about as simple as, Lord, what are you doing? How can I help? Allow me to be a gopher in the kingdom of God. And Jesus makes a wonderful promise. He says, ask and you will receive. Because this is the heart of God for us. Let's pray together. Lord, the thought that you would sacrifice what was most precious to you to gain access and entrance, response, and love from people like us. That is something that we can't get our minds or hearts around. This is a story of a God like no other God. This is a story that calls out our hearts, that invites us into deeper and deeper relationship with the eternal fellowship of love that is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and God, it's what in the deepest part of our being we want. My heart says of you, seek his face. Lord, we confess we're, we're divided people. Our hearts are often divided. And so as much as one part of us wants to seek you, another part of us is afraid or defensive or preoccupied or whatever. This morning, Lord, 
as we're turned to you. We ask that you'd help that uh, deepest desire to overtake and increasingly minimize the, the whatever part of us. The part that's preoccupied, the part that doesn't ask, the part that doesn't pay attention, the part that is afraid to let you in. We ask this in Jesus' name, with thanksgiving. Amen.